We're going to be in Hebrews 13. We've been working through this, thinking through it, uh, studying through this amazing sermon. Apparently to this group of, of Jewish Christians, having a hard time struggling, trying to hang on, some wanting to slide back. And the pastor of this sermon encouraging them to press on. And we come now to chapter 13. And I just want to read to you one and a half verses. So picking up halfway through verse 5 of chapter 13. For He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Again, for He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Father, thank You for the promise. And we ask that You will help us work through this promise and and chew on it, Father, and digest it, that it become more than just words, that it would become revelation to our hearts. I pray for that divine work of Your Spirit this morning as we study Your Word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if Hebrews 11 is faith exemplified and Hebrews 12 is hope verified, then Hebrews 13 must be love applied. 1 Corinthians 13.13 tells us, Now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And just as chapter 13 of the letter to the church at Corinth is the, the love chapter, so chapter 13 in the sermon to the Hebrews is the love chapter. And it is love throughout, and we'll really get into that and see it on Wednesday night. But if you want to just look at verse 1, it says, Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. The chapter begins with love. In fact, it begins with a word play. There in verse 1, the word let love of the brethren continue. Love of brethren is Philadelphia. And then the next verse, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Well, that's Philozenia. Philadelphia, brotherly love. Philozenia, love of strangers or foreigners. Interesting. And again, we will talk about that on Wednesday night. But this is not where we get the idea that chapter 13 is about love. We realize in chapter 13, specifically when we pick up in verse 5, God's love applied. So when I say that Hebrews 13 is love applied, it's not your love and mine. It's not just how to apply love, although that is there. It is God's love applied. God's love applied, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. C.H. Spurgeon said, I defy the devil himself to mention circumstances under which I ought to be miserable if this text is true. Child of God, nothing ought to make you unhappy when you can realize this precious text. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You see, nothing says I love you like faithfulness. Oh, you can speak the words. You can behave in a manner that expresses love. But it's faithfulness that proves love over the long haul. It's faithfulness that shows us, yes, indeed, someone truly does love us. When I look at my wife of 31 years, I recognize (laughs) she loves me. 
I know she does, because she's still here. (laughs) Faithfulness extols love. The reality is, though, we live in a culture that extols the vice of unfaithfulness. No, faithfulness is what proves love. And we stand before a God who defines faithfulness in terms of love and love in terms of faithfulness. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that says, May the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. And marvelously, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. It's who he is. So when we read, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, that is faithfulness declared. That's God saying, I will be with you the moment you receive me, and I will never depart. I will be with you then, and through the rest of your days, and on into eternity, I am here. I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. Faithfulness. We all will have people desert us. We all have had friends, family, loved ones that we never expected to walk out the door. We have had that happen. We will have that happen. That is the stuff of humanity. We tend to be unfaithful. But God will never do that. He is faithful. Now, I'm sure you Greek scholars already picked this up, but let me point this out to you, that he uses five negatives in this one sentence. Five negatives when he says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. If you were to read that in Greek, you would see five negatives to express one amazing, fantastic, great positive. Five negatives. We can't even do that in English. We can barely handle two negatives in a sentence. We get the double negative going and we're like, is he saying yes or no? I don't get it. The best we can translate this would be something like, I will not, cannot leave you. I will never, no, never forsake you. I will not, I cannot leave you. I will never, no, never forsake you. Five negatives. That is faithful. That is eternal love. That is the love that God expresses to you and to me. And He can say it because Jesus Christ is the same. Amen. See, you'll learn it. I told you you'd learn it. (laughs) Hebrews 13.8 He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, when He says, I will love you forever, you can count on it. You can believe Him because He doesn't change. Because his perspective stays the same. And when he expresses something here, he will follow through over here. It's the way God is. Now, when I first read this verse, I was a a teenager. I think I was about 16 years old. And I was searching through the Bible to find somewhere. I I knew that God loved me. I knew the concept of God as love was there. but, But I wanted to see somewhere where he specifically expressed it. I wanted to hear God say, Rick, I love you. And this was one of the first verses that I ran across and discovered and saw, wow, in fact, He does. God is telling me, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And I thought, well, that's as good a statement of love as anything I can hear. He loves me. And I thought, well, wait a minute, though. That's a quote. He's quoting something else. 
That doesn't just come out of verse 5. That's, that's from somewhere else. And so that began to rattle me a bit. And I had to think it through. What I want you to notice this morning is that the pastor has a treatment of back-to-back quotes in this verse and a half. That while it is God saying, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, we respond, we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? And that in and of itself is very telling to us. He speaks, we respond. He speaks, we respond. That's how it works. That has always been how it works. That is always how it will work. It's not the other way around. It is not we speak, we cry, we demand that He better answer us. He better make Himself known to us. He better explain Himself to me. God, how could you do this? Do you exist? If so, prove yourself to me. Now see, that's, that's the human perspective. We speak, He responds, He owes us something. Answer me. You know, what child says that? <laughs> A lot of kids, actually. <laughs> Matteo Beltran did. You may not know his name, but if you were one of the five million plus viewers of the viral YouTube video that hit YouTube about, oh, five, six years ago, a video that Matteo's mother, Linda, posted in 2012. You saw this precocious little three-year-old arguing with his mother over cupcakes, saying, Listen, Linda, listen! Listen to me, he says. (laughs) No, no, you listen to me. No, no, you listen to me. It's hysterical. It's still up on YouTube. You can find it. She's like, honey, I'm not listening to you. I'm not listening to you anymore. Linda, honey, 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 look it. Look it. Listen to me. She says, I'm through arguing with you. I'm through arguing with you, he says. Little three-year-old kid. You ever do that with God? Listen, Jesus. Listen, Yeshua, listen to me. I'm done arguing with you. And people do this. Hey, hey, he speaks. We respond. He goes first. We listen. Uh, The pastor has already told us that. If you look back in chapter 3, go and flip back there just for a moment. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. He says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling from the living God or that falls away from the living God. How do you fall away? You argue back. You demand to be heard. You speak. He listens. But that's not how it works. He speaks. We respond. Don't harm your heart. Hear His voice. Hear His voice. You know, and as Mateo is arguing with his mother, Linda, she keeps trying to get him to stop and listen, and he won't listen because he wants her to listen. 
And so often in our lives, we won't listen because we are demanding that He answer us. But we can't hear His answer even because we're demanding. He speaks. You respond. Let Him speak. Give Him a moment. Listen up. Over in chapter 12, skip ahead to chapter 12 and look at verse 25. The pastor writes, See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape who turn away from Him who warns us from heaven? He speaks. We respond. Or, or He speaks. We refuse. And that's the choice you have. You can respond or you can refuse. Either way, He speaks first. Because, listen Linda, the clear and articulated counsels and cautions and warnings of God are always spoken in love. He always speaks first, and He always speaks from the position of love. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12. Repeated in Hebrews 12.6. Repeated again in Revelation 3.19. For whom the Lord loves, He reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. So there in chapter 12, verse 25, where it says, if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned from earth, He's talking about Sinai. He's specifically referring to the warning on earth that came rumbling off of Mount Sinai. Whereas the warning from heaven comes from Mount Zion. The warning on earth was, keep the law. Here's my perfect law. Keep the law. The warning from heaven is, don't refuse the gospel. The warning on earth came as His voice shook the Sinai, but Hebrews 1 verse 2 tells us, in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. Through Jesus. Are we listening? He speaks. We respond. Don't refuse Him. Don't refuse the Son. Heed the warning. What is the warning that comes with the Gospel, that that comes with Jesus? Acts chapter 4, verse 20, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And so the voice that thundered from the Sinai is the same voice that says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Now there are a couple things I want you to notice in this divine quote as we begin by listening to Him speaking. We'll get to our response in a moment. But just in Him speaking, a couple things to notice here. And the first one is this, a significant location. A significant location. When did God say this? When did the quote originate? Who was he talking to? That tells us, that instructs us so much we need to turn back there. So if you'll turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 31. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. And we see from the answer of this significant location. When did God say this? Where did God say this? It begins to unfold 
this concept of His love and faithfulness before our very eyes. Deuteronomy 31, looking in verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, that is the Canaanites, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Hey, there it is. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous. For you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. He just repeated it. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now you may read that and say, wait a minute though, that's not the exact quote. That's in the third person. Actually, that's Moses speaking to Joshua about God's faithfulness and God's intentions. But you know what? The Lord didn't want Joshua to miss it. So he himself repeats it straight up in the first person. Look over in Joshua chapter 1. One book over, Joshua chapter 1, verse 5 which is the true origination of the pastor's quote in Hebrews 13. Joshua 1.5, God speaking to Joshua, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. I will not fail you or forsake you, Joshua. God will not fail you or forsake you, Joshua, Moses says. The promise laid out, the promise guaranteed, I'm with you, I'm in this, I will never, no, never desert you. I will not, cannot forsake you. I am with you. And you know what's so significant about the location of this promise of faithfulness? Is it was spoken on the sandy shores of the Jordan River. Meaning what? Meaning it was spoken after 40 years of desert discipline. After 40 years of proof of the faithfulness of God. Then he says, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. What happened in those 40 years? The children of Israel suffered punishment for their disobedience. The children of Israel were barred from entrance into the promised land, which would have been a very short journey. In fact, from Egypt to the promised land, with a brief pause at Mount Sinai, it would have taken a couple of years in that process. From Sinai on to the promised land, wouldn't have taken any time at all. But they get to the, to the entrance to the land, they get to Kadesh Barnea, and their faith fails, and they don't believe that God will never desert them or forsake them. And so he says, alright, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you I will never leave you. And this is what's marvelous to me. Forty years of discipline in the desert. And He never leaves them. He never leaves them. He's with them in the discipline. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7 says, The Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of our Lord. Remember, Jesus would say the same thing. 
Jesus would also provide bread from heaven, as it were, in the feeding of the 5,000. Your clothing, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 4, your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. I'd like to know how God did that. Do you realize that's a supernatural thing? They didn't have Amazon in the wilderness. So they couldn't just order up a new shirt when the old one wore out. God made sure their clothes remained for 40 years. What an amazing thing. Deuteronomy 29, verse 5, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, nor has your sandal worn out on your foot. Now, these are the little miracles that people completely miss in studying the Bible. But to get up every morning and to put the robe on and go, this looks pretty good. I I remember tearing the hem of my robe on the rocks yesterday and it's all stitched up. My sandals look great. And God provided that. He was with them in the wilderness. Why? Because a loving father never disciplines and departs. You see, true discipline requires that the parent stays with the child. True discipline is not reprimanding and running away. I think I've told you before, my father taught me this even as a young child. I realized that he could spank me and then hold me as I wept, you know, after the spanking. And I learned there's something in that, that discipline is an act of love. And that the disciplining father, as we see with God, doesn't say, you're not going to listen to me? You're not going to trust in me here at Kadesh? Fine, go wander. I'm done. I'm out. He goes with them. He wandered with them. Every morning when they got up, guess what they saw? The cloud above the tabernacle. The Shekinah glory, the Shekinah glory of God. Every evening as they went to bed, there was that fire at night. Every night for 40 years, he led them. Every morning when they stepped out of their tents, there was the manna on the ground. Breakfast. I made toast. When they were thirsty, there was water provided. Everywhere they went, God was their provision. Disciplining them, yes, they were not allowed to go into the land, not yet. In fact, an entire generation would die off before they went into the land. But even that entire generation that would die off would learn of the faithfulness of God. Why is that? I believe so that they could be saved and not condemned. That's what a loving father does. We talked about this midweek, that that godly discipline is always on purpose. It's never God losing His temper and flailing at the children. If you look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, tells us furthermore we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? You Bible students know the Father of spirits, that's the only time that phrase appears in the entire Bible, because it refers to the Father of our hearts. The Father of spirits, our spirits. He goes right to the heart of the matter, disciplines the heart, disciplines and works with the Spirit, because that's what a loving Father does. And in verse 10 he says, For they disciplined us for a short time it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for good, so that we may share in His holiness. See, with God, discipline is always so that. Always so that. So that we may taste of His goodness. 
so that we may, may know His righteousness, so that we may share, that's remarkable, share His holiness. Not just see it from a distance, not just worship and honor and laud Him for it, but we may share in His holiness, His uniqueness. He says, there's no one like me. And He says, but I want you to be like me. And so we share in that. And you know, there's even more to the recollection of this of this quote. More than, than Moses telling Joshua, more than even God just telling Joshua himself directly, the timing of this is amazing because it was given to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 verse 5 after Moses was dead. Moses had died. And all of a sudden, God didn't go silent. He came to Joshua. And he spoke, now listen, son, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. I am with you. What has the pastor been saying through the entire sermon to the Hebrew Christians? Don't go back to Moses and the old law. Don't slide to the old religion, the old works, the old dingy self-righteousness. Go forward, and here at the end of the sermon, he lands right in this place of the going forward with Joshua. Joshua, Yeshua is his name, the name of Jesus. You don't go back to Moses, you go forward with Jesus. And he draws out this quote at a perfect moment, at the end again of the sermon, bringing it to a fine point. God is faithful. He was faithful to Joshua and through Joshua. That is to Joshua 3,500 years ago, but today through Yeshua, through Jesus Christ. You know, it's it's funny, I heard that at Billy Graham's funeral, that Anne Graham Lotz used that exact analogy. I didn't know, I didn't get to watch the funeral, I I missed it. But I heard after the fact, I'm like, I'm going to talk about that on Sunday morning. So I just want you to know, I didn't get it from her. We don't go back to Moses and the old religion and the old human way of trying to better ourselves and trying to prove ourselves worthy. We go forward with Joshua, with Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus Christ. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John 1.17 So it's a significant location. That this quote, where it was drawn from, was given not to Moses, but literally was given to Joshua, was given after the 40 years of wandering, after the discipline had been proven and God had shown himself faithful. Then he says, now, it's been 40 years, I will never leave you. Do you believe me now? When Cheryl says to me, Rick, I will never leave you after 31 years, I'm beginning to believe her. There are still times I go, I don't know. I was pretty stupid this week. Forty years, and he said, I will never leave. Well, it was a significant location, but there's also something else in this. In God saying, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, there is a, number two, secure communication. A secure communication. You see, there's a difference between the words desert and forsake. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. They appear to just be synonyms to strengthen the message, but it's more than that. Understand that when God speaks, He always speaks securely and precisely. He always says exactly what He means and means exactly what He says. We don't have to guess with our God. And so that word desert, Annie Amy, 
in the Greek. I will never desert you. It means I will never relax my grip. Any Amy means to relax or loosen the grip or to leave and let sink. I will not, I cannot, God is saying, let you go. I've got hold of you. It was the fourth watch of the night when Jesus came walking on the water to the disciples. Freaking them out. I mean, they're in the midst of the storm. We're told that the boat was battered by the winds and the waves and they were already quite a distance from shore. And here comes Jesus walking on the water. Let me just read the story to you in Matthew chapter 14. It tells us when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Then he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Which is always the right thing to say. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. Can you imagine Jesus letting go? Now, see if it was me, just for a practical joke, I would. I got you, whoop, oh, whoopsie. Okay there, Pete? Peter? You know, I mean, I'm the pastor who says for 20 extra bucks, I'll hold him down longer during baptism. Peter didn't go under. Because when Jesus grabs hold, he does not let go. He will not let you sink. He holds fast. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give eternal life to them. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So back in Hebrews, when he says what he says, I will never desert you. I will never let you slip. I will never let go. I will not let you slide. I'm not going to let you sink. God's son wouldn't do that. Oh, it's like the old hymn that proclaims, Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in Thee. I give Thee back the life I owe, that in Thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. He is the love who does not let go. Now, the next word is just as specific and just as secure. The word forsake. I will not forsake you. I'm not going to let you go. I will not forsake you. It's incatalipo, which is just kind of fun to say. I will not forsake you. Incatalipo means to abandon or to leave. Just think of it in terms of taking a flying lipo. Incatalipo. I, you know, I was thinking about Israel and we had a, a tour guide. The very first time Cheryl and I went on a pastor fam tour. Uh, and his name was, name was uh, David. Oh, his last name? I forget now. Anyway, big Jewish man. And he talk like this. Get your backpacks and your Bibles. We are not coming back. You know, we get off the bus going, where's this guy taking us? And uh, I remember being out there on the precipice of Nazareth. 
And this is a place where uh, Jesus was driven out of town, and they tried to throw him off the precipice. And we're up there, and he was telling a few of us, he was saying, yeah, I remember one time as a young tour guide, I didn't know really what I was talking about, and one of the pastors asked me the name of this precipice, this hill, and I couldn't remember what the name was, which is just called Mount Precipice. And he said, oh, it's uh, Mount Lepiophagus. Yes. <laughs> he said... <laughs> He said the guy's got his nose going, leapy off again. <laughs> Incatalipo means to abandon or to leave. Not only will he not let you go, he will not abandon you. I will never, no never, abandon you. And you know what? Most would after what we've done. When I think about the things that I've done, y'all know nothing about... But he knows the things that I've said in my life, my behavior before a righteous and holy God, if I were him, I would have abandoned me a long time ago. Some of you need to hear that. Because some of you still are sitting here thinking, my sins are the only ones that are just bad enough that maybe he won't forgive. Okay, You've never been more wrong if you think that. Because in your wrongness, you must realize the rightness of God, the righteousness of God, who says, I will never, no, never abandon you. You don't understand. It has nothing to do with your ability to stick to me. I'm sticking to you. It has no, nothing to do with your ability to hold on to me. I am holding on to you. And time and time again, we see God standing firm. You know, Peter got grabbed by Jesus and did not sink. I will not desert you. I will not let you slip. I'm not going to let go of you. And Peter was also never abandoned by Jesus. And one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, and and you might not think so because it just seems to be instructive, just kind of telling us something that happened. But we see the angel who had a very special message as he sat on the stone that was rolled from the tomb that Sunday morning, Mark 16, 7, the angel said, but go, tell his disciples, and Peter, and Peter, that he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. The message of the angel comes to the denier. He names the denier in the scenario. Tell the disciples and Peter. It may seem a little thing, but Jesus made sure that the angel made sure that Mary would make sure to invite Peter personally to come see Jesus in the Galilee. Why? Because not only, Peter, did he not let you go when you slipped in the water, but he also will never abandon you, even though you denied him those horrible three times. Of course, Jesus couldn't wait on Resurrection Sunday to meet them in the Galilee which I think tells us something about the love and the character of Jesus that by that evening he already had to show up again I'm going to meet him in the Galilee but man I, I got to see the guys shows up in the room on Resurrection Sunday Eve Peter's there whoa <laughs> tell the disciples and Peter and we see that play, that scene play out. In fact, I think we read it either Wednesday night or last Sunday in John 21 of that fish and bread breakfast on the Galilee shore where Jesus showed his love for Peter saying over and over, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, I like you. Yeah, but Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, I like you. Okay, Peter, do you like me? And that love relationship that Jesus sought to restore with Peter, 
showing Peter that though he and all the rest would run away, Jesus doesn't run away. Jesus will not, cannot leave you. I will not, no, never forsake you. But remember, remember, He speaks and we respond. He speaks love and we respond. Now verse 6. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man to do? What will man do to me? That is always the right response to faithfulness. That's always the right response. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. The Lord is my helper. We've talked about a significant location and a secure communication. Number three. A stunning implication. Verse 6 comes right out of Psalm 118, and you know, let's go there. Psalm 118. What I'm trying to show you here, and what, what amazed me and impressed me so much, and it does throughout the Scriptures, when the Hebrew Scriptures are referred to, are quoted, there's always a reason for it. There's always a specificity to it. And a beauty in it that we can learn so much just from going back and looking at where did the quote come from. So when you're in your Bible study, when you're reading a passage and suddenly you see things in all small caps, that means it's a quote from the Hebrew Bible. Go back and look where it came from. And ask yourself, why did it come from there? You learn so much about the heart of God when you take the time to do that. Which is what we're doing this morning. So, Psalm 118 is the right response, the entire psalm, to God's faithfulness. Psalm 118, by the way, is responsive in the first four verses and in another section. So we're going to do it that way. I'm going to read the first half of the verse. You respond with the second half of the verse. And uh, for a little practice, verse 1 goes, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. 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 That was kind of a... For His loving kindness is everlasting. That is yours to respond. So starting again, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Oh, let Israel say. Oh, let the house of Aaron say. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say. Now see, they would do this. And that's the way the psalm was written. To be responded to that one, perhaps the choral director there at the temple courts would sing out the first line and then the chorus would respond, His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. Four times because thankfulness, praise, and proclamation are always the right response to a faithful God. Thankfulness, praise, and proclamation. If you embrace God's faithfulness, you respond with thankfulness. If you know God's faithfulness, you have to praise. And if you're aware of God's faithfulness, you've got to tell people about Him. He is so good, so faithful. I will never, no, never abandon you. But let's keep going. Verse 5. From my distress, I called upon the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now there it is. Verse 6 is the quote in Hebrews 13, verse 6. Which is kind of nice. Hebrews 13, 6, Psalm 118, 6. But note this. He says, 
From my distress I called upon the Lord and He answered. Well, that's what a faithful God does. And that's, by the way, been the encouraging undercurrent of the entire Hebrew sermon. This is a sermon to those who are under duress. I called to the Lord in my distress. Well, why not pull right from Psalm 118? I'm in distress. And so the pastor in the Hebrew letter is is drawing back and he's telling these Hebrew listeners, listen, this is exactly what's going on in Psalm 118. You're under distress? Call to the Lord. Because He's faithful. He's going to see you through this. He'll get you through this. Now you might say, but, but, but wait a minute. The psalmist says, I called upon the Lord and He answered me. That's I speak, He responds. But Rick, you said, He speaks, we respond. True. But we can only speak to Him because He spoke first. You would not be able to speak to Him if He hadn't already spoken to you. You would not call on Him if He hadn't already called on you. God always speaks first. Always goes first. Is always heard. And it's after He's heard that then we turn around and speak to Him. He always opens the dialogue. Not you. It was Him in the first place. Verse 7. The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. Now, that's not smugness. It's contentment. It's knowing that, hey, God's with me and you can spew venomous words against me. Okay, I'm still alright. You can be hateful at me. You can call me a stupid Christian and I can go, I'm not, but okay. I am content in my God. I am not worried about what the world thinks of me. The world can say, you're unscientific. We are just talking about this this morning. You're unscientific. Well, actually, science comes out of Christianity. But let's not get into that argument right now. I have contentment. i got peace. Because the Lord is for me. Once I know that, fire away. The Lord is for me. Verse 8, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man, which many of you know is the central verse of the entire Bible. That's the one. If you break down all the verses, that's the one that lands smack in the middle. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Isn't that kind of the point of the whole thing? Verse 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Which basically means no other authority can care for you like he does. No other authority can carry you like he does. No other authority will never let you go. No other authority will never abandon you. Only Jesus. Now, verses 10 through 12, because we're going to go through this whole psalm quickly here, are again responsive. So in verses 10 through 12, I'll read the first half of the verse, and you get to respond clearly and articulately with the second half of the verse. Here we go. Verse 10, All nations surrounded me. Doesn't that feel good? In the name of the Lord, I'm going to cut them off. Oh yeah, keep going. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. <laughs> you you sound so sure. Hey, if you were in the middle of battle, you wouldn't be going, in the name of the Lord, I would surely cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I would surely cut them off. And verse 12, they surrounded me like bees. <laughs> they were extinguished as a fire of thorns. Your turn. Yes, I will cut them off and please don't call me Shirley. That's a beautiful statement there. 
What he's saying in, in cut them off is literally fend them off. In the name of the Lord, I will fend them off. I will defend against the haters and the persecutors and the maligners. How? In the name of the Lord. Which means I don't return fire for fire. It, re- it means I return the Lord for their hatred. I return the Lord for their anger. That's how I defend. The Lord is my defense. Didn't he tell Abraham that? I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. I'm your shield. So let me be the shield. Someone comes at you with negativity, you return them with the Lord. And that will defend. Oh, there's so much more I can say on that one. we gotta, we got to keep going. So, uh, Proverbs 18 verse 10 tells us, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. So utilize the name of the Lord. Utilize the name of the Lord. Verse 13. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, or literally so that I fell, but the Lord helped me. Interesting verse. You pushed me violently, and I fell, and the Lord helped me. How did the Lord help him? He sent Simon of Cyrene. You see, many people, and I would agree, believe that verse 13, actually all of Psalm 118 is prophetic, and you're going to see that in just a second here. But in verse 13, the one who was pushed so violently and fell was Jesus. And the Lord helped him by sending Simon. Luke 23, 26 says, When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And they would only have done that if Jesus had fallen and was unable at that point to carry the cross all the way to Skull Hill. Which is such an interesting dynamic in Jesus' walk to the cross that there was Simon of Cyrene. Because you see, if someone carried their cross, the reason why they made them carry the cross was to designate, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of this. Jesus didn't carry his cross. Because he was not guilty. We were guilty. His crucifixion was for our guilt, our shame, our sin. So they pushed me violently, and I fell, but the Lord helped me. Verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my, note this, the Hebrew word, Yeshua. He has become my salvation. The word salvation is Yeshua in the Hebrew, Jesus. He has become my Jesus. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation, again Yeshua, is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I ask you again, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God? Jesus is. This is talking about Jesus. Verse 17, I will not die but live. How's that possible? Because He did not die but lives. Oh, He died in the flesh, but rose again to live eternally. And I tell the works of the Lord, verse 17, verse 18, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Hebrews 12, verse 3 tells us, Consider Him who who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. God will deliver you from death. Has delivered you from death through Jesus Christ our salvation. Verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness. 
I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. Verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. What is the gate of the Lord? Now, this is a picture of entering into the temple gates to worship God. And yet, how do we enter into the heavenly temple? Through Jesus. Because Jesus is himself the gate. He said in John 10, 9, I am the door or I am the gate. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. By the way, quick side note, just got to tell you this. The sheep enter through the gate for one reason and one reason alone, never to exit. The sheep enter into the gate of the temple court to be sacrificed. But when you go in through the gate, which is Jesus, you get to go back out and find pasture. In and out. You're in to worship. You're out to find pasture. You're not going to be sacrificed on the altar because He was. He's already taken care of it. So we go through Jesus. And by the way, Hebrews 10.20 says, By a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, He is the gate. And we go through Jesus. Verse 21, I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. Again, my Yeshua. And then verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus said in Matthew 21, 42, did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus, Matthew 21, 42, quotes Psalm 118, verses 22, 23. Did you ever read that verse? Don't you don't you ever wonder what these things are about? <laughs> Jesus was saying. You ever read your own scriptures and wonder what he's talking about with this with this chief cornerstone? Now there's an old rabbinical tradition about that verse, connected to that verse, that, that the rabbis even today will tell as they're, as they're teaching through, uh, through the Tanakh. And that is that at the building of the first temple, the builders came upon a large stone that was sent up from the quarry, and they didn't know what to do with it. So they pushed the stone down the side of the Hinnom Valley, the Valley of Gehenna, the valley that represents in Jesus' teaching, Hell. They pushed it down into the Hinnom Valley and it came time to lay the cornerstone and no one could find it. Until someone said, "Um, (laughs) you think maybe that was the stone that we were supposed to use for the cornerstone? And they went down into the Hinnom Valley, they found it, they hauled it back up and it slid perfectly into place. That's a rabbi's tradition. And by the way, speaking of the chief cornerstone, which was representative of Jesus. The stones for the temple itself were cut and quarried away from the temple mount to the north at a place called Golgotha. That's where the stone was cut that would become the chief cornerstone of the temple. That's where Jesus was cut. The chief cornerstone who the builders rejected has become, he has become that chief cornerstone for us. My friends, the whole psalm is pointing to Jesus. And the choice of the pastor to pull verse 6 out of Psalm 118 was to do what rabbis did. Which is to say, if I'm quoting a verse to you, we need to go to the whole passage. 
You know, it's like Jesus did on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's pointing to Psalm 22, verse 1, so people would go to Psalm 22, read the psalm, and recognize it was prophetic of Jesus' crucifixion. And so the Hebrew pastor here is saying, I'm going to throw out a verse to you, and I want you to go read the chapter. Psalm 18 is all about Jesus Christ. Remarkably, verse 24, This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Do you realize that that verse, which is often used in song, and often used just as a statement of, Hey, today's a good day, was talking about the crucifixion day. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. The day of the sacrifice. Oh Lord, verse 25, do save, we beseech you. Know what that is in the Hebrew? Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna, oh Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. And then in verse 26, oh, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You can underline that in red because Jesus said it. Matthew 23, 39, I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He says that, and of course then we respond, we have blessed you from the house of the Lord. See, see that's, that's key here. What you're doing this morning, he says, you're not going to see me until you say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Don't you want to be among those who can say when he comes, we have blessed you. We've been blessing you. Lord, I have been, from the moment I met you until you called me home, I've been blessing you every day of my life. I've been worshiping you. I have been praising you. We have done so from the house of the Lord. Verse 27, the Lord is God and He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And so they bound Jesus to the crossbeam at Calvary. The one sacrifice that more than all others proves the faithfulness and love of God. You are my God. And I give thanks to you. You are my God. I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. And you read, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And that's the deal. That's the right response to the faithfulness of God. He speaks, we respond. He speaks, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And we respond, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Hmm. Isaiah chapter 65 verse 24 tells us something wonderful. You see, He speaks and we respond. But then, guess what? He responds when we speak. Isaiah said, It will come to pass before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. And again, Spurgeon says, Child of God, nothing ought to make you unhappy when you realize this precious text. Last thought. God doesn't just speak first. He loves first. Hebrews 13 is love applied because it is the application of the love of God to our lives, which then causes us to love because as John said in 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. He speaks, we respond, He loves, so we love.
Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the beauty and the richness and the depth. We thank You for the intentionality, Father, that goes all the way back to the first words penned by the inspiration of Your Spirit. And how they continue to flow like living water over our hearts even this morning. We thank You for Jesus, the chief cornerstone. We thank You for the example given. And Father, that even though we struggle in this life, though we like our Hebrew Christian brothers and sisters, our counterparts to whom this sermon was first written, though we may struggle, though we may be uncertain, though we may even be attacked, oh Father, what can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. And I thank You for declaring this so beautifully to us. I pray, I pray Father, that, that now You will give us hearts to receive, to respond, to embrace this truth, and to listen to Your sweet voice. In Jesus' name, Amen. He loves you. And what else need we say? He loves you. And so He says to you this morning, Is there anything I can help you with? Is there anything that you need to say to me? Is there any hurt that you'd like me to step in and heal? Any doubts that you would like me to assuage? Is there anything I can do? This He says to us this morning as He invites us to come to Him. And so I invite you, if you have any need, if you'd like to give your life to Jesus and trust yourself to Him, The truths of Jesus are profound, but the love is even more profound. If you need Him, and we all do, then I invite you to come and put your faith in Him, maybe for the first time today. And if you have any other need in your life, you have a Jesus who loves you, a Father who will heal. So come to Him. We'll have people at all four tables to pray with you. Let's stand and sing together.